0: Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for your grace. And Lord, thank you for that promise found in Deuteronomy, as thy day shall be, so shall be thy strength. And you promise, no matter how long our days were or how, how tough our day is, that your strength would be sufficient for us. God, thank you for that promise found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that your grace is sufficient. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our hearts And our minds, and as this message goes forward, we pray and ask that we have open minds to accept your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Tonight's message is entitled, The Mark of the Beast Revealed. And tomorrow night's is how Egypt proved the Bible to be true. That's one message you absolutely do not want to miss. Now this is something that was written by a reformer by the name of William Tyndale. He said something very interesting. He said this, I call God to record the day we shall appear before our Lord Jesus, that I never altered one syllable of God's word against my conscience, nor would do this day if all that is in earth, whether it be honor and pleasure or riches, might be given to me. William Tyndale said something very important, something very extraordinary. He was a preacher, he was a Protestant reformer, and he said to my best ability... With a pure conscience, I have preached the word as it is. And he said, I have not altered this. Even if the whole world was given to me, I would not change what was written in the word. And why that's extremely important, folks, is because we are giving the word of God just as it is. We are not recommending to you some special translation that we have. Nor are we recommending to you that you should only listen to us and you shouldn't check things out. Folks, I want you to check it out. Can you say amen to that? I want you to check on these things. And you're going to discover that the Word of God is exactly how it says it is, the Word of God. Can you say amen to that? But a lot of people come to these seminars and they're looking just to have their intellect stimulated. They'll come to these seminars and they'll just be blown away by some of the things that they hear. And they'll walk out of that room not changed at all. But folks, God wants not only to reveal the truth to you, he wants you to follow that truth. Can you say amen to that? Amen. And when William Tyndale preached, he said this. He said, look, I have not altered the word of God. It is as it is. And here it is. And folks, I can say the same. I will say the same again. We are presenting the Word of God as it is. We're not presenting to you one verse off in the corner of the Scriptures and building an entire teaching on it. No, no, no. You're getting the Scripture as it is woven throughout the entire Bible. Amen? Amen? Truth is consistent throughout all of Scripture. Not just in one book of the Bible, but throughout all of Scripture. Can you say amen to that? Now, when you look at the book of Revelation, you discover that the book of Revelation shows the Christ's triumph over evil. Now, take your Bible. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1. I want you to see something that's extremely important as we open up the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, page 1174. The book of Daniel is a prequel and the book of Revelation is the sequel. Revelation chapter 1. Now I want you to pay attention to that very first verse. It's very important. Watch what the Bible says. The revelation of Antichrist. Is that what the Bible says? No, no, no. It says the revelation of what? Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. The core of the book of Revelation is about Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? And shows his victory over evil and how we share in that victory. And praise the Lord for that. That's what makes the book of Revelation so exciting. When you look at Revelation chapter 12, you realize that we are engaged in a spiritual warfare. Some scholars call it the great controversy or the great tension between good and evil. When you look at the book of Genesis, you discover a perfect God who had perfect communion with the perfect people in a perfect location. When you take a good look at the book of Revelation, You find God, again, with a restored people in a restored location. And what you are seeing in the two, when you're looking at scripture, are the two bookends. And in the middle is the history of redemption and the history of humanity. Can you say amen to that? Something else you'll also discover is that when you're reading the book of Genesis, you'll discover one man and his wife, who are hiding from God, and they're hiding behind some trees. When you read the book of Revelation, when the Bible describes God coming again to his people, you discover the majority of the world hiding under the rocks and the trees, and they are terrified of God. And they're actually saying, help us to escape from the wrath of the Lamb. But it's very interesting. When you also look at the book of Genesis, you discover something also, another parallel you discover in Genesis chapter 6 the story of Cain and Abel. The story of who? Cain Cain and Abel. Now, Cain and Abel both worship that one true God. Cain didn't worship his own gods, and Abel didn't worship his own gods. No, no, no. They worship the same God. They were believers in the same God. But what you discover is that one individual by the name of Abel brought the worship that God had recommended and expected, and Abel or Cain brings his own worship to God. And what takes place is that when God talks to Cain, Cain gets very angry, and what does he do to Abel? He kills him. But what's interesting is what you see take place next. When God confronts Cain, he gives Cain a mark. He gives Cain a what? Mark. Mark. And that's very interesting because when you fast forward all the way to the book of Revelation what you discover is that the Bible doesn't talk about how there's Hindus versus Christians or there's atheists versus Christians. No, no, no. The Bible teaches at the very end of time it will be Christians versus supposedly Christians. And what will take place is that one group will bring the righteousness that God has asked for. Another group will bring its own righteousness and the result will be murder, death, and destruction. And the Bible teaches that one of these groups of people will get the mark of the beast. So what has been done in the past will be done again in the future. What has been done in the very origins of, of this planet will take place again at the end of time. Sin is climaxing at the very end of time and the devil realizes it and he launches his final attack. Now watch what Revelation chapter 12, verse 17 says. It ends on a very ominous warning. And the dragon was what? What's that next word? Enraged. I mean, he's not just mad. The Bible says he's enraged with the woman, and he went to make what? War War with the rest of her offspring. Now, when you read the first part of Revelation chapter 12, you discover that the devil started a war in heaven. This time, he launches his war against two. Look what the Bible says. With the rest of her offspring who keep the what? Commandments of God and have the testimony of who? Jesus Christ. So what you realize in the book of Revelation is that that same war that was started in heaven is transported and the devil launches his final attack, his final assault against the people of God who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And why this is very interesting is because in the very next chapter, Revelation 13, you discover how the devil carries out this plan. Revelation chapter 13 we discover about the two beast power we unfolded who these two beast powers were one was who the roman church system the very first beast and then we discovered the second beast was none other than the united states of america when that first beast power lost its power at the end of the 1700s the bible teaches another beast power would arise and bring back worship to the very first beast power Watch what the Bible says about this second beast's power. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be, what? Killed. He causes all, in some translation, he forces all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a, what? A mark on their right hand or on their foreheads that no one may buy or sell except one who has the, what? What? Mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. When you read Revelation chapter 13, it does not end up good. The Bible describes how an entire world is brought under the deception of the mark of the beast. And it's very interesting. I want you to pay attention to this. Look what it says. He causes all both small and great. In other words, both young and old. So while God has plans for your life, guess what? The devil has plans for your life as well. Well, God has His purpose and He has for some things He wants to accomplish through your life. Guess what? Satan has plans for your life as well. He has purposes He wants to accomplish. But what God is doing, God is calling you onto His side. Can you say amen to that? Now, this is very interesting. When you look at the end of time, you realize that there is a coalition, a union that's put together. That is attempting to destroy the people of God. Satan is ultimately trying to wipe out any existence or any remnant of what God has done in his people. And he personally attacks those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. He enforces a mark over the entire world. Over the entire world. When you look at the book of Revelation chapter 14, you're going to discover one of the most intense warnings, if not the most intense warning given throughout all of Scripture. Right? So take your Bible, go to Revelation chapter 14. You know, growing up in Southern California, you discover two things. That people have one of two dogs. They either have chihuahuas or they have pit bulls. They either have chihuahuas or they have pit bulls, okay? And generally, you do not see a sign that says beware of dog when the owners just have chihuahuas, although they probably should. But when you see people have that sign, beware of dog, it's usually an intense warning indicating that there is a threat. And so what the Bible does in Revelation chapter 14, it gives a warning, a very ominous warning, a very intense warning, if not the most important warning throughout all of Scripture, And you know it's an end time warning because it deals with the mark of the beast. Well, let's take our Bible. Let's go to Revelation chapter 14. We're going to start speeding up a little bit. Revelation chapter 14. Are we all there? Amen. Amen. I gave you plenty of time to get there. Revelation chapter 14, starting with verse 6. Let's go there. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to all those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and... So this end time message is going through every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. Well, what's the message? Let's keep going. Saying with a loud voice in Greek, that's megaphone. Watch this. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his, what? Judgment. Judgment is come and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The first angel's message that comes out is fear God because the hour of his, what? Judgment come, and we discovered from Bible prophecy that judgment started when? In 1844, and that's why the Bible says the hour of his judgment has come. And the Bible says, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs. That's an exact quotation taken directly out of the fourth commandment about the Sabbath who created the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and the springs therein. So we discover that this first angel's message is about worshiping the creator. Worshiping the who? The now let's fast forward a little bit. Take a good look at verse 8. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the, what? Wine, Wine of the wrath of a fornication. The second angel's message is the system, the false system of Babylon is it is it is wrong it is time for you to come out the bible declares it is fallen when you read bible prophecy you discover there are two prophetic cities throughout scripture there's the city of babylon and there's the city of jerusalem there's the city of babylon and the city of jerusalem so you discover the first angel's message is worship the creator the second angel's message is come out of confusion now watch the third angel's message because this is the most important one Verse 9, then a third angel followed them, saying with a megaphone voice, If anybody worships the beast and his what? image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and folks when you take a good look at this you discover that this warning is the most intense warning given throughout all of scripture and that is avoid the mark of the beast Throughout all of Scripture, God is warning at the very end of time, when it's all coming right down to the very end, the finish line, God is saying, look, you've got to do everything in your power to avoid this mark. I mean, this is an intense warning. God is using very strong language because he's trying to communicate. You do not want to be part of that group that receives the mark of the beast. And so, folks, it would be well for us to heed What the Bible is saying. Can you say amen to that? Watch what Revelation chapter 14 verse 12 says immediately after. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the what? Commandments of God and have the faith of who? Who? Jesus now why this is remarkable because we discovered in the previous two chapters that the devil has a big problem with those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. So what's happening in Revelation chapter 14 God is saying be careful of being part of that category that receives the mark of the beast instead be part of the category of those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Can you say amen to that. And why this is so important, because when we discover the central issue regarding the end times, it's about what? Worship. Worship. And the mark of the beast is opposite of the seal of God. Now, we'll unpack what the seal of God is, but this is extremely important. Don't miss this. If you have the mark of the beast, you do not have the seal of God. I want to say that one more time. If you have the mark of the beast, you do not have the seal of God. And if you have the seal of God, guess what? You don't, what? Have the mark mark of the beast. So if you want to avoid having the mark of the beast, logically, what must you do? You must discover what the seal of God is and what God's plans are for you concerning this beautiful seal. Can you say amen to that? We're discovering how we can avoid the mark of the beast, and that is simply by obtaining the seal of God. And we're going to understand the seal of God right now. But the question is, what will you have? The mark of the beast or the seal of God? At the end of time, There are the sheep and the goats. There's only two categories. There's no third category. The truth has become very clear at the very end of time. You either have the mark of the beast or you have the what? Seal of God. Seal and, God, seal of God. and I'm hoping and praying that everybody here would get the seal of God. Now watch what Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 says about this interesting seal, whatever it is. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the, what? Seal of the living God. He cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have, what's that next word? Sealed the servants of our God, On their foreheads. At the very end of time, right before the four angels are about to let go of the winds of strife, before all chaos, before all hell breaks through, God is saying, Wait, 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 let's make sure His people have the seal of what? God. God. So we need to understand what is the seal of God. Watch what the book of Revelation teaches. Revelation teaches that before the coming tribulation, before the very end, before this great Armageddon, His children will accept. God's seal, where? In their minds. In their minds. Now it's very important. I want you to pay attention to this seal because it only can appear in one place. Revelation chapter 7, in describing the sealing of God's people at the end of time, says, Until we have sealed the servants of our God on their, what? Foreheads. Now, why is that very important? Because the Bible teaches that the mark of the beast can appear both on the forehead or on the hand. But the seal of God can only appear in one place. Your mind. Your forehead. Now, this is very interesting. We're going to continue with this journey. Revelation chapter 14 also describes his end time people. But watch what else it says. It's very interesting. It's talking about this group of people who stand for him at the end of time. And look what it says. Having his father's name written in their what? Four, heads. Four heads. And there we begin to understand that the seal of God is synonymous with the father's name. What we understand is that the seal of God equals the father's name. But the question is, once again, what is the seal of God? What is the father's name? What in the world is it? that the people are possessing in their minds or in their foreheads at the end of time. What is this seal of God? First thing we need to understand is that when someone receives something in their forehead, biblically speaking, it is something that has to do with a conviction that it is right. In other words, why they're receiving the seal of God in their foreheads is because they believe it with their whole heart, with their whole mind. When somebody is receiving a mark on their hands, it is simply doing it out of convenience or coercion. Not that they actually believe it, but it's the easy thing to do. The mind or the forehead represents the mind, and the hands represent labors. So why the mark of the beast appears on the forehead or on the hand is because some people, through the delusion of the devil, will actually believe this is right, what's happening, and some people will simply do it because it's convenient. It keeps them out of trouble. They don't want economic sanctions. But when it comes to the seal of God, it only appears in one place, the heart and the mind. You can't follow God half-heartedly, amen? You can't pretend to follow God. You can't say, well, I'm going to fool God. No, no, no. The Bible teaches you must have the seal of God only in one place, and it must be in your heart and in your mind. Can you say amen to that? Deuteronomy chapter 5 actually describes this whole concept about the mind and the heart. It's very interesting. It's talking about the law of God. And then Deuteronomy chapter 6 says something very interesting. That the Israelites were commanded to wear the law between their eyes. In other words, the law was to be put here in a little box. And what it represented was when they wore this box that the law of God was written in their hearts and in their minds. But we discover in Revelation chapter 14 that those who have the seal of God are individuals who have the Father's name written in their foreheads. The seal of God is the Father's name written in their foreheads. But what does that mean? What is the Father's name? Is it Jehovah? Is it Yahweh? Is it Jehovah Jireh? Is it Adonai? What is the Father's name? And how is it written in their foreheads? Now watch this. You're going to see something remarkable. Take your Bible. Let's go to Ch- Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. One day, several thousand years ago, God was speaking to Moses. And Moses very, very, made a very interesting request, a very courageous request to God. But we're going to Exodus chapter 33. Page 85, Exodus chapter 33. That's the second book of the Bible. Now watch what the Moses says to God. Look at verse 18. Moses makes a very interesting request, a courageous request, a brave request before God. We're going to Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Watch what Moses says. And he said, please show me your what? Glory. Glory. Moses actually has the nerve to ask God, Lord, I want to see your glory. He was alone on top of that mountain. He said, No one else is around here. God, I want you to show me things you haven't shown to anybody else. He said, Show me your glory. But watch what God says to him. It's very remarkable. Then he said, I will make all my what? Goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. And what's written in the servants of God's uh, the, of, what's written in the servants' foreheads of God's people at the end of time? The name. But watch what God says right here. I'm going to proclaim my name. Okay, let's keep going. Before you, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I will compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me which you shall stand on the rock. And it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now watch what the next verse says in verse chapter 34. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write these tablets, the words that were on the first tablets, which were broken. So God tells Moses to do three things. He said, number one. You can't see my face. Number two, you must stand in the rock and turn, and you're going to only see my back. And the third thing he says to him is cut two tablets of stone. Do you remember the request that Moses made before God? He said, look, I want to see your glory. And God says, all right, I'm going to make my name pass before you. So let's see what happens in this very next encounter. Let's keep going. Verse three, and no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before the mountain. Verse four, he cut two tablets of stone like the first one. Then Moses rose early in the morning, went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now watch this. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. That's the same name that's written in the the foreheads of God's people at the end of time. Well, what is the name of the Lord? Let's keep going. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and what? Gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now watch this. After God gives Moses this litany of characteristics... All of a sudden, Moses realizes what's been done. Look at verse 8. Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. Folks, I want you to understand something that's extremely important. A lot of people get caught up on the name of the God, a name of God. Jehovah's Witnesses are very strong about the name of God. But when you read the scripture, you discover that what God's name really is is simply his character. His what? His character. You know, when God told Moses, I'm going to make my name pass before him, what did he declare? He didn't say, my name is Yahweh, my name is Jehovah, my name is Adonai. No, no, no. He said, the Lord God is merciful. He's just. He's right. He's holy. Folks, the name of God is his character. When you're studying the Old Testament scriptures, you discover that when people named their kids, it weren't naming it simply Bob or Richie or Anel, Nothing wrong with those names, right? Amen. But what would they name when they would name the kids based upon the child's character or what they were hoping the child would become? Abram became Abraham and his name means the father of all nations, right? And Sarah means princess. That's exactly right. And she represented Abraham's queen. You read the name Peter, the name that God had given to Simon. The word Peter means small rolling pebble. And so when you see this, you realize that names represent character throughout Scripture. And when God told Moses, I'm going to proclaim my name, what he was giving to Moses was an inside look at God's character. And why that is very important? Because at the very end of time, when you see God's people having the seal of God, the Father's name written in their forehead, what does that mean? It means God's people at the end of time will have God's character in them. Can you say amen to that? God's character with them. And why that's so remarkable is because God also wrote his character on two tablets of stone. Look what the Bible says right here in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 16. Seal the, what? Law among my disciples. The Bible makes it very clear. Look what God would do in Jeremiah 31 verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my, what? law or his character in their what minds and write it on their hearts so we begin to understand more about this sealing that's taking place and we're going to discover and unpack something that's very interesting at the end of time god never uses force We realize that the mark of the beast will be using force, but when we see the seal of God, this is God's work. This is something He's doing on willing vessels. This is something He is doing with His people who are open to His work. He is writing His character in their lives, He is imprinting Himself upon their hearts and their minds. And this is powerful when you understand end time events. But what particularly is the seal? What exactly is the seal? Now it's very interesting, you look at Old Testament documents, you look at various documents of archaeology antiquity, you discover that a seal is what makes a document official, and it normally contains three characteristics, the name, the office, and territory. The name, the office, and territory. An example would be Cyrus, comma, King of Persia. His name his office, and his territory. And here's an example of a seal right there. And people would place a seal upon an envelope or a letter they did not want open, right? And so this is what a seal contains. It contains three characteristics, the name, the office, and the territory of the individual who is putting that seal. And when you take a good look, you can see the president's seal as well. You see that we use seals throughout our entire, um, the history of America as well. But when you look at the seal of God, when you look at what the seal of God is, what contains the name of God, his title, and his territory? You begin to understand very clearly what the seal of God is. There's only one thing throughout Scripture that has his name, his title, and his territory. It's the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. It's the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. Right there in the middle of his law you discover the fourth commandment, the biggest commandment. Every commandment is important. Can you say amen to that? And the Bible teaches in the book of James that if you choose not to keep one of those commandments, you're breaking them all. And God does not want you to be a lawbreaker. Amen? There's a big difference between someone who is in sin, in other words, someone who's just choosing to not fight in this battle, and somebody else who is struggling against sin. We're all struggling against sin. Can you say amen to that? But, folks, the problem is when we say, you know what, I'm not going to try. I'm just going to live as I am. That's somebody who's in sin, and that's not the place God wants you to be. When you discover this ceiling that takes place at the end of time, you discover that God is writing his law upon his people's hearts. He is writing this beautiful law upon the people's mind because the law is a representation of his character, who God really is. Can you say amen to that? And his people will be just like him. But right there in the middle of the law is the fourth commandment. And you begin to understand the core of the seal is the seventh day Sabbath. Watch what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. For in six days, the Lord, his name, made, that's his title, the creator, the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, his territory, and rested the seventh day. Right there in the middle of the ten commandments is the core of the seal And that is the fourth commandment. Why is the fourth commandment important? Because it brings the two principles of the Ten Commandments together. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. But on this special Sabbath is a day when you can actually use both those principles together. You can worship God on the Sabbath day and not forsake the assembling of your people. And at the same time, you can show love through your works and through your outreach on the Sabbath. Can you say amen to that? It's very remarkable, and I said this the other day, is that when you realize the tension that took place between Jesus and the Pharisees regarding the Sabbath in the New Testament, it did not have to do with whether or not the Sabbath should be kept. I want to say that one more time. The tension in the New Testament did not have to do with whether or not the Sabbath should be kept. It was about how the Sabbath should be kept. It was about how the Sabbath should be kept. And Jesus freed the Sabbath from its superstitious superstitious errors. Jesus freed the Sabbath from the burdensome Pharisees. Jesus freed the Sabbath from those man-made traditions and showed the beauty of this holy day, this special day of relationships. Can you say amen to that? God's people at the end of time are going to have this seal and they're going to practice this seal. The Sabbath is God's personal seal of loyalty and faithfulness to him as the creator. Can you say amen to that? Romans chapter 4, verse 11. It's very remarkable. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith. You discover the word sign and the word seal is used together. Abraham received the sign of circumcision, which was the seal of the fact that he accepted righteousness by faith. He believed that God redeemed him. And that is very important because the Bible tells us and shows us the Sabbath seal. The Sabbath is a sign or seal I shouldn't ignore. This is the reason why. It is a sign or seal between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heavens, the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day he rested and he, well, he was refreshed. We discover, number one, that the Sabbath is a sign that God is the creator. Amen. God doesn't need billions of years to create this planet. No, no, no. He just needs six days. He simply speaks it into existence, and it takes place. And this is so remarkable because the Sabbath is simply a day that honors God's creative power. Can you say amen to that? But what else is the Sabbath a sign of? The Sabbath is also a sign of redemption. Look what it says in Ezekiel 20, verse 12. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them or redeems them. So we discover that the Sabbath is a sign of creation, and the Sabbath is a sign of redemption. The sign of creation and the sign of redemption. We keep the Sabbath not to earn salvation, but because salvation has been freely given to us amen Amen. this day that we rest as it says in hebrews chapter 4 is a symbol of the rest that we have in christ amen and this is why we keep this holy day it is a symbol of the righteousness of god not our own righteousness but the righteousness of god and this is the same worship that abel was bringing before god not my righteousness abel was saying but the righteousness of the lamb of god can you say amen to that and so we, unlearn- we learned about this beautiful Sabbath, the core of the seal of God, the seventh-day Sabbath. And folks, it's so remarkable. I know many people here are learning about the Sabbath, and they're experiencing the Sabbath. Here's the best advice I can recommend to you. Number one, don't give up on the Sabbath. Amen? Amen. Number two, pray that God would teach you more about the Sabbath. I never forgot when I started keeping the seventh-day Sabbath, I said, Lord, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I said, God, you have to show me. And God began to teach me the beauty of the Sabbath, a day that is set apart from this entire week, a time frozen throughout this busy, hectic society where I can come and worship my creator, where I can fellowship with the people of God. Amen? Amen. And this special day, the Bible teaches us in Isaiah 58 that if we keep this day, we will delight ourselves in the Lord. And if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will what? give you the desires of your heart amen but what exactly is the mark to identify the mark of the beast you must first identify the what the beast beast. now that's so important because a lot of people are in the world today and they're trying to identify the mark of the beast is it a tattoo is it a microchip is it the visa card what is it exactly you know, I know some people who are so adamant about refusing to get certain credit cards because they, they're thinking to themselves, that's the mark of the beast. Or they'll meet, they won't even get their dogs chipped because they're afraid that that might be the mark of the beast. It's going to start with dogs and it's going to come to me. But folks, here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is the one point that's extremely important. To identify the mark of the beast, you have to first identify the who. The beast, because when you identify the beast, you then get to identify his mark. mark and that's just simple common sense. Can you say amen to that? Well, we, uh, we learned about the beast power. We learned that this first beast power had many names, and just doing a little bit of review, it helps us unpack what his mark would be then. We learned he's called the man of sin in Scripture, the lawless one, the beast of Revelation 13, the son of perdition, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. We also learned that there was 10... Biblical statements that were made about the Antichrist. And ten characteristics identify clearly who this power would be. He'd rise up out of the seas. He'd uproot three kingdoms or tribes after divided Rome. He was a religious power that receives worship. He rules for 42 months. He persecutes God's saints. He changes times and law. He speaks pompous words and blasphemes. And by the way, what's the definition of blasphemy? One who's claiming to be God and claiming to? Forgive sins. The Pharisees accused Jesus of blasphemy, saying those exact things. He had a deadly wound but was healed. The whole world wandered after him, and his number is 666, or the number of men multiplied. Folks, when you take a good look at all those characteristics, you realize very clearly it's only one power, the papal Roman church system. Amen? And, folks, God loves Catholic people. I'm going to say that one more time. But it is the system he has a problem with. Why? Because the system is a counterfeit, and counterfeits do a lot of harm. Amen? Now think about this. When is the last time someone gave you a $3 counterfeit bill? <laughs> we, people don't have $3 counterfeit bills. They have $5 counterfeit bills. They have $10 counterfeit bills. And those cause more damage than a $3 counterfeit bill or a, or what you might call a $6 counterfeit. So in other words, the counterfeit that resembles the real deal is more dangerous and it has more consequences than the, than the phonies. Now, why is that more important? Because what God is saying right here is that this system that has this veneer of religion, that has this veneer of Christianity, is causing a distortion in the character of God. It was through the Dark Ages that a lot of corruption entered into the church. Teachings about hell, teachings about the immortality of the soul, false teachings about justification, ideas that the only way you can find forgiveness with God is to go to a priest. And it was when the people did not have access to the scriptures that they were prone to these things. But folks, we have the word of God and we know what the scriptures teach. Amen. Yeah. And like what Martin Luther says, the scriptures alone, sola scriptura. But the Bible makes it very clear that this system is the system identified in Daniel chapter 7. We looked at several characteristics and just really quickly we learned that from 530 AD... He received full power, and he reigned all the way till 1798, where that power was finally stripped, and that was exactly 42 prophetic months, 1,260 years. Folks, you can't get any more precise than that. God is showing that we can trust Bible prophecy, amen? And if he was right about the past, guess what? He's going to be right about the things that he's talking about in the future. Can you say amen to that? And that's why we need to trust his word. We need to trust his word. We discover the number of the beast, or one who takes the place of God. And by the way, what does the word Antichrist mean? One who takes the place of Christ. That's exactly right. And this was a title that has been used for years. And here's a document actually by a cardinal, a leader, a well-known leader in the Catholic system who verified, yep, that is his title. Folks, but there is only one Jesus Christ. Amen? And nobody can take his place he is the one true of Lamb of God, and from Him we receive our righteousness. Amen? We discovered that it was during the Dark Ages that this power made war against the people of God. And these are actually just very conservative estimates. Some estimates went up to 100 million. At times, the Roman church system would actually wipe out one group, the Huguenots, 2 million Two million were murdered because of their stance upon the Bible. Others were chased into the woods, into the forest, because they believed in the righteousness of Christ. And folks, sometimes we just look at that and we just sort of ignore history. But that's history, and we need to understand it, because if we don't understand it, we're bound to repeat it. Amen? This system reigned back then. Here's some of the quotations that come from Catholic literature, and you're going to see where this is going. For thou art another God on earth. The Pope is not only of the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of flesh. Folks, there's only one Jesus. Can you say amen? Amen. Here's some more that says, look what the book of Daniel says, that he would think to change times and laws. Well, what did he do? The Bishop of Rome, or the Pope, is of so great authority and power that he can modify, explain, or interpret even divine laws, since his power is not of man, but of God. Folks, Jesus did not come to change the law, and no other man has power to change the law. Amen? Antichrist's characteristic is that he would intend to change time's law. We discover that the fourth commandment was was changed, and the second commandment was deleted to introduce idolatry. Now, this is where it gets very interesting. Watch what this is. Therefore, the mark of the beast must be the mark of the Roman church system. The mark of the beast must be the mark of the Roman church system. Well, what is their mark? What is their symbol of authority? Sunday is our mark of authority. Sunday is the mark. There's a misspelling right there. Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof. Of that fact. Folks, I don't know about you, but I'm under the scriptures. Can you say amen to that? And I test all things by the word of God. There is no man on earth and there's no church on earth that is above the word of God. Amen? But you see very clearly here, you have some honesty, at least from the Catholic leadership, that look, Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible. Now, does that mean somebody who's worshipped on Sunday, all the people that, many people that we love who worship on Sunday have the mark? No, no, no. Nobody, I want to repeat this now very clearly, because somebody's going to walk out of here distraught or frustrated. Nobody has the mark of the beast right now. You know why? I know why? Because it's only when the mark of the beast is enforced that it becomes the mark of the beast. So right now, there is not an issue. But, folks, nonetheless, God is still calling us to follow the commandments. Amen? And if you're not faithful today, how will you be faithful in the future? If you're not faithful today to follow God, how are you going to be faithful in the end? A lot of people have this mindset, oh, I can't wait till the end of times. I'm going to be a hero. But, folks, if you're not being a hero for God now, how is that going to happen in the future? Because times are only going to get worse. Amen? Of course, the Catholic Church claims the change, Saturday, Sabbath to Sunday... Was her act and her, the act is a mark, pay attention to the language, of her ecclesiastical authority in religious things. Sunday is the law of the Catholic Church alone. I know many Christians say, will say, no, 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 we're no longer under the law. Jesus did away with the law and all sorts of things. But folks, when you look at what the Bible is teaching, you can't avoid the Ten Commandments. Amen? Yeah. Protestantism in discarding the authority of the Roman Catholic Church has no good reason, reason has no good reasons for its Sunday theory. And ought, now pay attention to this, logically to keep Saturday as the Sabbath. Now folks, if I was somebody who was in Catholic leadership and I believed that the church was over the scriptures, I would say very clearly, okay, if you're going to follow the Bible, then you should keep Saturday. But if I wasn't somebody Or if I if I wasn't somebody who followed the Roman church system, but I followed the Bible, then like I appreciate their honesty, I ought logically to keep Saturday as the Sabbath. Amen? You know, I came across one individual. He says, but wait a second, does it really matter what day we worship? I said, can I ask you a question? He said, yes. I said, would it be okay for me to have another God besides the God of the Bible? And he's like, absolutely not. You can't change that commandment. I said, are you sure? He said, yes. And then I said, how about this? How about I have just one idol on the side? I used to be Hindu. That's what I told him. And he's like, no, you can't have any other idols. I said, so I can't change that commandment at all. No, not at all. Okay, I said, how about I take the name of the Lord God in vain? Isn't there a justification sometimes? And he's like, no. I said, how about this? How about would there ever be a justification for me to commit adultery? Just once. And he's like, no, you can't. i go, okay. Would there ever be a circumstance where I can lie? Absolutely not. You can't change that one bit. I said, Would there ever be occasion for me to steal? Is there any justification for me to steal? And he's like, Of course not. There is no circumstance where stealing should be justified. I said, Here you are. You're telling me nine of the ten commandments can't be altered or changed in any bit, and here you are telling me that's okay to change the fourth commandment. <laughs> Folks, do you see the simple logic? And he stood there and he said, You're right. Of course I'm right, because it's not me that's right. It's the Bible that's right. Can you say amen to that? And we ought to follow the word of God. Can you say amen to that? (laughs) Most Christians assume that Sunday is the biblically... Let's focus. Most Christians assume that Sunday is the biblically day of worship the Catholic Church protests that it transferred Christian worship from the biblical Sabbath to Sunday and that to try to argue that the change was made in the Bible watches is both dishonest and a denial of Catholic authority if Protestantism wants to base its teaching on the Bible it should worship on Saturday now you're thinking to yourself what's the big deal about worshiping on a different day folks it has to do more with the Lord of that day Amen? He's called the Lord of the Sabbath. He calls it his holy day. And if you love Jesus, you're going to follow Jesus. If you love Jesus, you're going to do what Jesus did. WWJD, we call it sort of, it's like something you might knit and put over a toilet or something. But folks, that is the principle of our Christian lives, to do as Jesus did. Amen? Amen? And Jesus went to church on the Sabbath. It is always somewhat laughable to see the Protestant churches in pulpit and in legislation, watch this, demand the observance of Sunday of which there is nothing in their Bible. They make it very clear, look, you can't find anything about Sunday change. You know, I had one friend who was a preacher, and he preached these same series, and he would say, look, I'll give somebody $10,000 if they can find me one verse in the Scripture that shows the Sabbath has been changed from Saturday to Sunday. And guess what? Still to this day, he's got that $10,000 in his account. Why? Because there is nothing. Folks, the Bible makes it very clear that the Sabbath day that Jesus kept is the same Sabbath that we just had shortly a while back ago. Watch this. This is all from awesome Catholic literature. They, the Protestants, deem it their duty to keep the Sunday holy. Why? Because, watch this, the Catholic Church tells them to do so. They have no, no other reason. The observance of Sunday thus comes to be an ecclesiastical law entirely distinct from the divine law of Sabbath observance, which is the Ten Commandments. The author of the Sunday law is the Catholic Church. It is well to remind the Presbyterians, Baptists and Methodists and all other Christians that the Bible does not support them anywhere in their observance of Sunday. Sunday is the institution of the Roman Catholic Church and those who observe the day observe a commandment of the Catholic Church. And folks, I want to ask you, who are you following? Are you following man or are you following the Bible? Are you following a man or are you following God who gives the word? Amen? Amen. I have repeatedly offered $1,000, this is actually a Catholic priest, $1,000 to anyone who can prove to me from the Bible alone that I am bound to keep Sunday holy. There is no such law in the Bible. It is the law of the Holy Catholic Church alone. The Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Catholic Church says, no, no. By my divine power, I abolish the Sabbath day and command you to keep holy the first day of the week. And lo, watch how he ends in very pompous words. The entire civilized world bows down in irreverent obedience to the command of the Holy Catholic Church. Folks, I want to ask you a question. Who are you following today? Are you following man-made traditions, man-made laws, or are you following the Ten Commandments written by God himself? Are you following a man of this world, or are you following Jesus? Who are you following, folks? And it shows who you're doing, what you're doing when it takes place. Okay, amen to that. (laughs) Lost me there. (laughs) Okay, in Revelation chapter 13, the mark of the beast represents a human attempt to substitute man's law over God's law and enforce this with an economic decree that eventually a death penalty. We learned this morning that when economic sanctions fail, what will take place is a death decree. And at the very end, this is the very end, this is when Armageddon takes place, when the entire world arrays itself against the people of God. Now, why is that called Armageddon? When you discover, and you take a good look at the word Armageddon, you'll discover that the root word of Armageddon is har or mountains of Megeddo. And this mountain, and right there in the mountainous range of Megeddo, has one central mountain. It's found in the Book of Kings, and it's Mount Carmel. What happened on Mount Carmel? Elijah was arrayed against the false prophets. This man stood against the false prophets, and it was over the commandments of God. At the very end of time, when the entire world outnumbers the people of God, it's going to have to do with the law of God. And it will take place on the proverbial Mount Carmel. When, uh, the, this, this proverbial location throughout the entire world, when each person will be on their own Mount Carmel, they'll have to make a decision for who they stand for and what they stand for. At the end of time, this is going to take place. And folks, those blue laws, many of them are still on the book. And we see these things taking place. So what's going to happen at the very end of time? We're going to discover that the mark of the beast is going to be enforced. And eventually there will be a worldwide Sunday law. And those who are following God in the honesty of their heart, in the integrity of their heart, God's going to make sure they're pulled down. So you may be thinking, what about my family? What about all those for generations who are worshiping God, who have worshiped God on Sunday? Don't you worry about them. God is big enough to take care of them. Amen? But he calls you today to follow him. He calls you today to worship him. God is revealing the Bible truths to you because he wants you to be a part of his everlasting kingdom. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, that he who keeps the commandments has right to the tree of life. Can you say amen to that? And folks, our world, and as I said today, our world is like a chess game. And what Satan is doing, the master strategist, he is putting all the pieces in play. And when the time is right, there's going to be a massive worldwide checkmate upon the people of God. A checkmate upon the people of God. That's why it's important today to make your stand for God. Can you say amen to that? God is calling His people to stand for Him, for Bible truth. God is calling His people today to stand for Him when it comes to the truth of Scripture and the very law that He came to proclaim. The Bible teaches in the book of Isaiah that the Messiah would come to exalt and magnify the law. He would magnify the law. And when you look at throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, there's been controversies over the people of God and their worship. But in the days of Noah, God invited His people to make a stand. And Noah, with every hammer hit, with every hammer that he put, or hit that he made on that gigantic boat, was a message to the world, follow God. In the days of Noah, God invited his people to take a stand. In the days of Noah, God invited his people to make a stand. In the days of Daniel, when it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the entire Babylonian leadership bowed down, they would not break the commandment of God. In the days of Daniel, God invited his people to take a stand, and he invites you today to make a stand. In the days of Jesus, God invited his people to make a stand. He called forth his disciple and he said, Who will you follow, the traditions of man or the commandments of God? And those who heard the voice of God followed Jesus. Jesus was speaking before Pilate, and Pilate had a choice to make. Here he stood, between popularity and his job, and Jesus on the other side. And Jesus was trying to save him. Jesus said, whoever is of the truth hears my voice. But Pilate, one of the greatest cowards in scripture said, send him away. Folks, God doesn't want you to be a coward. He wants you to stand for Bible truth. Amen. In the days of the dark ages when those reformers were being put on the stake. And they were, offered to re- they were told to recant, to give up. Give up on these teachings of scripture. It's not worth it. God was calling his people to make a stand and many reformers, many martyrs lost their lives being faithful to God, taking that stand when the whole world would forsake them. Folks, a lot of people hear this message and say, you know what, it's just too tough. Folks, I want you to understand, back then it was too tough. But those reformers said, you know what, I follow the God of the universe. I follow the God of the universe and in the days of the dark ages... God invited His people to make a stand. In these last days, God is inviting His people to take a stand for Him. You're hearing these Bible truths because the Lord is trying to reach you and He is trying to save you. And if you would just say yes and say, Lord, I'm going to follow you. You know what the Scripture teaches. You know what it teaches. History doesn't lie, folks. God is calling you to make that special stand for Him. Not tomorrow. Not often, several months, not when things are convenient, but today and say, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm making this stand for you. Folks, in today's history, in today's life, at the end of time, God is calling his people to make a stand for him. And if you don't stand for him today, you'll never stand for him tomorrow. Folks, I'm going to ask you today a very special appeal. You said I, I've heard what the Bible says about the Sabbath. I believe it's clearly taught in Scripture. You can see very clearly it's in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments don't lie. You see what history is teaching. You know the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Folks, I'm going to appeal to you today that if you're going to take a stand, that you say, all right, I'm going to stand for God today. I'm going to stand for God for His Sabbath. I want you to stand today, right now. If you want to make that request, say, Lord, I'm going to stand for Your Sabbath. Folks, don't make that decision if you're not planning to do it. But if you're saying, all right, I'm going to keep God's seventh-day Sabbath. I'm going to keep His commandments. I'm going to live a life that's going to bring honor and glory to God. Why? Because I love Him. Because of what He's done for me on that cross 2,000 years ago. Salvation was given to us. And folks, in response to that salvation is why we follow God. Can you say amen to that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, here we are, God. And the only reason why we're taking a stand right now is because you took a stand for humanity 2,000 years ago. And Lord, this is why we're empowered right now is because you went through hell for us, Lord, that we might be in heaven. And you're calling us in these end times, in the middle of this great controversy, the end of humanity's history, to make a stand for you, to follow you, to follow your word, God. Oh, Lord, help us to be faithful. You see, all the people who are standing here who are making this decision, God, bless them. Hold them to it, Lord. Send your angels. We're all weak, God, but we thank you. Your grace is sufficient, especially for weak people like us. May each person go out with courage and not let the devil distract or disturb them. May they come back tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio